Philippians chapter 2 is where we'll be this morning. You know, I am amazed. I, I was taking a quick look um, while we were going through, uh, while we were singing, I was taking a quick look at some of the verses that describe the way we are to be with one another. Um, therefore, Romans uh, fourteen thirteen says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another. Verse, or chapter 15, verse 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. 1 Corinthians 7, do not deprive one another. Chapter 11, verse 33, when you come together to eat, talking about communion, which will take in a little while, wait for one another. Greet one another. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Hebrews, but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. You, you, you start to get the feeling that this one another thing must be pretty important. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. You see, it's how we live with one another. It's how we deal with one another that's an expression of our faith. In fact, Jesus even said, they will know you are my disciples in this, that you love one another. Maybe, just maybe, the reason that you feel like sometimes your prayers hit the ceiling and bounce back down at you, maybe the reason sometimes you feel like you're so far away from God, even when you're reading the Bible and even when you're praying and even when you're studying, maybe perhaps there's a problem with one another. And I'm not talking about, well, he just did something to me. I mean, I mean a, a, a real deficiency in our relationships together. Maybe, maybe we need each other well more than we could have ever imagined. This morning, I want you to join with me in the struggle for one another. Not the struggle with one another, okay? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the struggle for one another. We find in the book of Philippians that the, the Philippian church, I don't know if it's a problem or if it's just like a budding problem and he's trying to cut it off at the pass, but Paul starts to address the way that they treat one another. In fact, he did it at the end of chapter 1. Uh, look with me in Philippians 1.27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's saying in light of, in light of all 
the struggles that we're facing, walk worthy of the gospel. Live out your life as citizens of the heavenly kingdom. But, but he continues, so that whenever I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm, listen, in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In other words, he says, I want to hear that you're one anothering, that you're bearing one another's burdens, that you're encouraging one another, that you're building each other up, that you're humbling yourself before one another. I want to, I don't want to hear that you're grumbling against one another. I want to hear that you are one anothering, if I may coin a term. You see, it's in this one anothering that we find Christ. It's funny how that works, how when we're doing this right, we're always pointing to Jesus. Paul says, look, you've been called to suffer just like I've been called to suffer. We are suffering not because we're terrible and we're getting punished. We're suffering for the cause of Christ. Now, sometimes the suffering takes different forms. You've heard me preach before. Sometimes it's outright persecution. It's it's tying them to a stake and burning them for their beliefs. Sometimes it's feeding them to the lions in the gladiator arena or in the lion's den. Sometimes it's, eh, we just won't, we just won't give him the promotion because, you know, he's a little crazy about that Christian stuff. You know, he's, you know I, I would like to come to your house for Thanksgiving, but I don't think I'm going to be able to make it. I don't, and all the while thinking in his head, I don't want to hear about that Jesus again. It could take different forms, but all of us are facing, at least we ought to be facing some sort of struggle for the gospel of Christ. And that's kind of the whole point of the letter, isn't it? That, that in the midst of the struggles that the Philippians are facing, Paul is encouraging them and building them up for the mission of the gospel. And in his struggles carrying out the gospel, they are supporting him and building him up to help him continue in the mission. They are partners together, koinonia, fellowship together. And you can't do that separate. You have to be together. Koinonia does not work when there's only one of you. <laughs> there's got to be more than one together for it to be a partnership. And so Paul is partnering with this church back and forth, doing all these things. And he's beginning to see that there's some, there's some potential problems brewing. We'll hear a little bit later in the book about two women, Yodia and Syntyche. When we get to them, we'll see some of this struggle play out in more definite terms. But right now, Paul is seeing something brewing. I don't know if it's just them or if they're beginning to cause factions in the church. I don't think it's as bad as it was in Corinth where like some are coming in and starting to eat the supper while others haven't even made it in the room yet. But he wants to cut it off at the pass and he realizes if we're going to one another properly, we have to be unified. And the funny thing about unity is that it really boils down to two major traits. I know I'm a Baptist preacher. I'm supposed to have three points, but I'm only going to really have two traits here, okay? Humility and selflessness. Let's see him in action. Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, this if is not if as in, I'm not really sure, can you tell me if there is or not? This if is, I'm, I know there is. If there is any encouragement in Christ, that word um, plays off of a name for the Holy Spirit, the parakletos, the one called alongside. 
It gives the impression of people who are alongside one another, helping each other along. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, there's koinonia. That word participation, that's koinonia. Is there a koinonia in the Spirit? There better be, right? These things ought to be true if there's any affection and sympathy. Your version may not repeat all those ifs. They're all there, each one in the Greek. You could just say one if, but he doesn't. He keeps repeating that. If there is, if there is, if there is. In other words, to say, I know there's this. I know you have encouragement in Christ. I know you have uh, um, comfort from love. I know you have the koinonia of the Spirit. I know that you have affection and sympathy. Do you see them? Do, do, do you live them? Are you, are you giving these out? Are you receiving them? Verse 2, complete my joy. Make it full by being of the same mind. Now, does that mean we all think alike? In one sense, yes. We are called to one thinking. In fact, a little bit later, uh, uh, it says, later on in this verse, it says, um, having being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And that, that and of one mind is literally of one thinking. Thinking the one thing. And so there is a sense in which we ought to be the same mind. But that doesn't necessarily mean we always are lockstep exactly in our thoughts. But it means we have the same thinking process going. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. All of us ought to be thinking with a renewed mind. And a renewed mind in you and a renewed mind in me are going to think along the same kind of lines. Have you ever been married to someone and after a while, you start noticing that they don't even have to say it anymore. I, I, the other night, laying in bed, I started feeling warm. Carrie's in bed beside me. And I said, I didn't even say anything. I just got up and turned on the fan. And she said, thank you. I said, I figured I'm getting a little warm. You're probably warm too. It's funny how that happens. You just start to think the same way as someone else when you, when you live with them and you're married to them. And, and, and you spend life together. Funny how that happens. That ought to be happening in church. Not, not in the building. I'm not talking about the building. I said church. The people. In us. We ought to be living our lives one anothering so well that we can kind of look at each other and know what you're thinking. Yeah. I mean, we just, we just get the idea and we, yep. Don't, that nobody even has to say there's a, a need. You can just look at someone's face and say, you look like you need a hug. How about a hug? Hey, you, you want me to bring you some food later? I bet, I bet it's been a while since you've had a good home-cooked meal. Let me, let, me, let me bring you something by. I got some extra. Uh, I'm going to make a big meal. I got some extra. I, let me bring you something. It's funny how unity has that effect. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. This is not something that happens overnight. It's not something that happens quickly. It's not something that happens when you jump from church to church to church. It's not something that happens when the pastors jump in from church to church to church. It's not something that can happen just because we all happen to have the same label of Christian. It's something that must be fostered over time. We have to live together. One anothering for this kind of thing to take place. But I said there's two traits, right? Humility and selflessness. 
Why do those two lead to unity? Well, he tells us in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. He says, all right, you want to live this kind of li- this life of unity, this one another kind of life? The way you do that is not acting out of selfish ambition. You're not going to look after your own best interests. You're also not going to look after your own conceit, making yourself bigger. Sometimes I need my head deflated a little bit. You ever need that? No, of course not, Daryl. No, absolutely. Of course we do. We all do. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. This is where one another really boils down. This is, this is like the roux at the base of the gumbo, okay? All right? This is it right here. It's when you're willing to sacrifice your interest for the interest of another. That's when you get down to that one another kind of life. That's when unity can really happen. Because at that point, it's not about you anymore. And that's where it gets hard for us. Because we can give, and we can give, and we can give, but after so long, we start saying, you know, I I need to take a little bit. I can't just give and give and give and give and give, right? We sing along with a country singer. I like talking about you, 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 you usually, but occasionally I want to talk about me. That's how we get we want, we want to look after ourselves sometimes. And you got to look out for number one. You got to take care of yourself. And, and while there's some truth to that, this Christian life requires us not to give some of ourselves, but to give all of ourselves. If only there was an example, if only there was something we could point to, someone that maybe demonstrated this for us, so that we could see what it looks like in real life. If only we had an example. Not only do we have an example, we have a divine example. And not only do we have a divine example, we have in the verses that follow the divine imperative. Read verse 5. Have, that's, that's an imperative. That's a command. It's not be having. It's not try to get. It's not look around until you can find. It's have. Have what? This mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Your virgin might say, which was also in Christ Jesus. What is it about Christ that points us to humility and selflessness? Verse 6, who in grammar If you identify someone and then you say who, you're going to describe them. He's going to give the description of Jesus that shows us not just the full picture of Jesus, but specifically what he's talking about here. What is it that leads to humility and selflessness? What is it in Christ that points us to these values that we need to emulate? Well, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Yours may say something like uh, to be taken for his own advantage. The word here refers to something that is seized. Maybe, li- maybe, maybe uh, legally the, the bank seizes the car because you didn't pay the note on it. Or it seizes the house because you weren't paying on your mortgage. It could be a legal seizure. It could be an illegal seizure. It could be pirates coming and taking the things 
You know, pirates on the sea. I know I, I used to think of pirates as just something made up. Um, but it turns out there are actual pirates. Even, even today, there are real pirates. And that's how they, that's how they get stuff is they steal it from other people. Jesus looks at equality with God and not equality as in I'm on the same level as God, but equality as in I am God. He, he looks at that and he says, I don't have to hang on to that. Now, is he talking about divinity? No, he's not talking about being God. He's talking about the divine privilege. You, you know the divine privilege. God doesn't have to be seen in order to exist. You don't have to be able to experience him, you know, touch him, feel him, taste him, smell him, see him. He doesn't need any outward representation. He doesn't have to reveal himself. He doesn't have to make himself known at all. He can sit quietly behind the scenes and not lose any aspect of his character. God is God, whether you know it or not, whether you like it or not, whether you know him or not, he's still God. The divine privilege in part is the fact that he doesn't need a outward expression of his inward reality. He doesn't have to be shown, have to be displayed, have to be exhibited. He's God because of who he is. We need something. I mean, if we were all just spirit, that would completely change things, wouldn't it? We need a physical body. We need skin, flesh, and bones. We need, we need a voice. Some don't have it very well. We need the ability to have senses of some kind. Some, some can't see or hear very well, but they can still feel. We need some kind of way, some kind of physical way for us to be known and to know. God doesn't need that. Jesus says, I could just experience all the glory of being God, be perfectly content in my triune relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, be complete in and of myself, because God doesn't need anything else. But he says, you know what? I'm going to lay down the privilege of divinity, the form refers to the inward reality of him being God. He's willing to put down the privilege of God. And then it says in verse 7, but emptied himself of that privilege by taking the form of a servant. In other words, he chooses to be the outward representation of a servant. He chooses to take upon himself this lowly position, not because he doesn't deserve better. He deserves much, much, much better. But he's willing to lay aside the privilege so that he can represent God to us. And it's not just in the incarnation. It's in the way that he lives. He doesn't just take the form of a man, though he does. He takes the form of a servant. How do you know a servant? It's not a trick question. Say it out. They serve. How do you know a robber? He steals. How do you know a pitcher? He pitches, right? If he's, if he's the one throwing the pitches, he's the pitcher. Doesn't matter what the, what the name on the, in the, in the uh, flyer that you get, you know, the little game program. Doesn't matter what the letter says beside his name. If he goes up to that mound and starts pitching, he's a pitcher. How do you know a servant? He serves. 
In other words, Christ isn't just emptying himself by becoming a man. He's emptying himself of the divine privilege by serving. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Because he's doing the work of a servant. He's demonstrating the selflessness and humility that we are supposed to have because we're following him. You see, it's not just that he is God and now he's saying, all right, all right, fine. I'll do this menial service, even though it's beneath me, just to show you what to do. No, 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 no. At his very core, he is selfless and humble. The service It's just our way of seeing it. Him taking the towel and kneeling before his disciples and washing their feet. That's just the way that we see the character that he is. We know God's character because of what he does. We know Christ's character because of how he serves. He isn't a servant, but he's humble and he's selfless. And because he is those things, he does serve. Not only does he serve, he came to serve. Not only did he come to serve, he came to give, to give his life as a ransom for many, is the way he puts it. By taking, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. It's not that I'm going to assume this role of service. It's that I'm going to do the service in demonstration of who I am, being born, in the likeness of men. Slightly different word there. It's not just form. It's not just that outward representation of the inward reality. This is the outward representation of the outward reality. There's nothing within that's causing something to come out. It's it's what's without. It's You might say he put on flesh and dwelt among us. Hey, that, that does sound pretty good, yeah. We talked about this morning in Sunday school about the word. We talked about how the word was in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And and I and I showed them how we knew that he's talking about Jesus because of verse 14. John says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. You see, this is what's happening. This is this is why Christ is doing it, because what he's doing is he's giving us something that allows us to point to and say, now I can understand what God is like. It's not just, I'm going to do these things so that you will do them too. It's, I'm going to do these things so you'll know God. And then the gospel will do its work in your heart. E.Y. Mullins calls grace the sap of the tree and our works as the fruit. In other words, God's grace is what gives us the the nutrient, the the, the lifeblood that enables us to do the works of God. It's not just that Jesus is setting the example. He's giving the imperative. This then is how you should live. God never, never, never reveals himself without also commanding that somebody act like him. Be like him. Be ye holy. Why? Because I am holy. I'm not just showing you that I'm holy just so you'll know I'm holy. I'm showing you that I'm holy so that you will go and do likewise. I'm being holy so that you will see my holiness and you will reflect my holiness. You'll follow my lead. That's why Jesus doesn't say, learn about me. 
He says, follow me. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Funny thing about obedience, it's not automatic. You have to become obedient. Even Jesus had to. Now, he's God in flesh, but we've got that same Holy Spirit in us, don't we? Don't we? That, that same Spirit that enabled him to be obedient in all things to God, the Father? Isn't that the same Spirit living in me and in you? Becoming obedient, how far? A little bit. Becoming obedient enough to get the task done. Becoming obedient, not really in your motivations, but in your actions. Yeah, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do what we have to do, but we won't like it. No, he went all the way. He became obedient to the point of death. And if that wasn't enough, even death on a cross. I don't know what the worst form of death is. We could compare all kinds of different forms of death if we wanted to. Uh, but the cross, I think, is demonstrative of the humility and selflessness that Christ exhibits. Jews would say he was cursed because he died on a tree. Romans saw him as a criminal, a Caesar wannabe. And yet here is the victory. In this most humiliating form of death, we find the supreme example of humility and selflessness. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. See, Christ wasn't exalted just because he was God. He was exalted not only because he was God, but because he was God in a way we could understand. That's why we sing songs like, Jesus, what a beautiful name. What's that wonderful name of Jesus? That's why we sing songs like there's just something about that name. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Humble yourself and God will exalt you. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those that are in heaven, those that are on earth, those that are under the earth. I, I, I don't think he left any out, did he? He doesn't get every knee bowing just because he has a name. He gets every knee bowing because of the recognition that he deserves every knee to bow. There's coming a day when all of creation, when every individual who has ever lived, past, present, future, every Caesar, every Pharaoh, every king, every street sweeper, chimney sweep, gardening expert, climatologist, virologist, Every pauper, every slave, every knee will bow. And every tongue confess. That this word confess is not just admit, it's profess. It will gladly profane, pro, profess, proclaim, sorry, not profane. There's plenty of profaning of his name going on right now. Then it will only be proclaiming. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Interesting in the Greek, there's no is, it's just Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> Every tongue professing, Lord Jesus Christ. You can't even make the whole sentence. He's just so glorious. All you can do is say his name. And that's it. To the glory of God the Father. You see, that's what all this is going to. All of this is going to God's glory. So now let's take a step back. We've considered Christ. We've considered his, his incarnation and his life in which he humbles himself. He, he puts away himself takes on the form of a servant so that we can understand his true nature. Fully God, fully man, 
Now we can see him. We can understand what he's doing. We can see the character of God in him. And he is exalted such that every knee bows or will bow. Every tongue will confess. And the Father is getting all of the glory for it. And it all happens because he's humble and selfless. And Paul says we should be like that too. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. I've got a question for you. What effect does the gospel have on your life? Are you exhibiting the humility and the selflessness that Christ demonstrated? Is the gospel the sap in your tree that's producing the fruit of works, the fruits of righteousness that ought to be on display? You know, healthy trees bear fruit. There's nothing wrong with the sap. There's nothing wrong with the gospel. There's nothing wrong with the lifeblood, with Jesus Christ. There's nothing wrong with him. He shows that. He demonstrates that. And he calls us to live a life like him The problem comes with us, doesn't it? The problem comes because we like us more than you. You like the person in your mirror, and I like the person in my mirror, and we don't always like each other. But he didn't call us to like each other. He called us to love each other, to bear one another's burdens, to humble ourselves before one another, to encourage one another and build each other up. He calls us to this life of one anothering in which humility and selflessness are the things that will bring us closer and closer together. The things that will make unity possible. Oh, it's so true. Jesus didn't just give us the example. He gave us the imperative. We celebrate communion. One of the things that we celebrate is communing together. So I want this communion to remind us of our struggle. Sometimes it seems like a struggle with one another, but it ought always to be a struggle for one another. Father, I pray that we would exhibit the humility and the selflessness that your son did when he died on the cross. But even before that, when he was incarnated, born, laid in a feeding trough, you expect these great big trumpets and and this glorious looking king, but instead he He puts on a towel around his waist and he bends to wash feet, the feet of his students. We expect him to charge admission. And yet instead, he bids people come that aren't even willing. We expect him to demand respect. But instead, he humbles himself and becomes obedient, even to the point of dying on the cross. God, help us to live that kind of way. Help us to live in humility and selflessness, to love and be united in one soul, in one mind, in one spirit, as your one body of Christ. Help us struggle for one another. This is your time. Do with it as you will. In Christ's name, amen. This morning, we're going to sing a brief invitation hymn, and then we're going to move into communion. I I just want to ask you, if you're not one anothering, very well. Today can be the day that that changes. Christ has set the example. He's given the imperative, but you know he also gives the empowerment to follow his example. 
and the Holy Spirit dwelling in you can make this life possible. I'm going to be standing up here at the front while we sing this hymn. If God's doing something in your heart, you come.